common in our world of pain and suffering for people to look for any way out, to any way to alleviate that pain and suffering in their own lives. Some people get pulled into, suckered into buying miracle pills over the internet that often leave them sicker than when they first took the pills. Some of us self-medicate with things like alcohol and illegal drugs just to find some way to numb the pain. And others sometimes take another route, uh, the route of folk religious healing. This can come in the form of maybe seeking out faith healers, whether it be uh, on the television or on the internet, or others find religious shrines that have religious significance and that there are rumors attached to these shrines of healings. There are relics like uh, from uh, body parts from John the Baptist or the Apostle Peter. I think there's something like 15 fingers of John the Baptist spread around the world. But often these withered fingers and bones encased in a shrine with little to no evidence that these are actually related to the historical figures are a draw to people who are seeking to be healed, to alleviate their sufferings. And yet people from all over the world, they flock to these faith healers and to these religious sites, hoping beyond hope for healing, desperate for some relief from their sufferings. In our passage this morning from the ministry of Jesus in the book of John, Jesus meets just one of a person uh, who's in that situation, looking for some way to alleviate the pain and suffering in his life. And here's how we're going to walk through this passage this morning. In this story, we have a, a pretty typical outline for uh, the miracle encounters of Jesus in the Gospel of John. There's first a healing, and then there's a, a response, a, a controversy that arises out of the healing, and then there's Jesus' surprising response to that controversy. So that's my three points this morning, the healing, the controversy, and then Jesus' surprising response to that controversy. So we'll start with just looking at the healing itself in verses 1 through 9. Jesus again makes his way to Jerusalem. This is the, the second time in the Gospel of John that he comes to Jerusalem. And Jer Jerusalem is the um, political and religious and economic capital of Israel. It's the, the largest city, the most powerful city in Israel. And he makes his way to a pool called Bethesda. And so this can be a little confusing sometimes when we're reading scripture because there's a Bethesda pool. And there's also a small town that sometimes Jesus goes to called Bethsaida. So you have Bethsaida and Bethesda. And sometimes even I get these two things confused. But Bethesda is the pool in Jerusalem. Bethsaida is the small town that sometimes Jesus visits. Here, Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda, and gathered around the pool at Bethesda were multiple people who were experiencing various kinds of suffering. There were people who were born blind, unable to walk, and completely paralyzed. And so that raises a question for us right off the bat. Why 
are the people who are experiencing various forms of suffering in Jerusalem gathering around this particular pool of water. We'll come back to that in just a second. But there at the pool, Jesus makes his way to the pool of Bethesda, and he strikes up a conversation with one of the suffering people, a sick man who had been paralyzed, unable to walk, who had been suffering for, the text says, 38 years. In verse 6, Jesus asks the man a simple and yet profound question. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And this man's response to Jesus' question gives us a clue as to why these suffering people had gathered around the pool at Bethesda. Verse 7 says, The sick man answered him, Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So apparently what's going on is at the pool of Bethesda, there has been a belief that has risen up among the suffering and poor people of Jerusalem that they could be healed if they were just able to get into the water while it was being stirred. The the pools, there were multiple pools spread out around Jerusalem, and these pools were fed by a series of aquifers and dams. And what would happen was people would, when the water was getting low, they'd open up the dams and water would come and fill up the pools of water. And the pools of water would look like they're being stirred. They would start to ripple, right? And so a, a local sort of legend, a local superstition had arose around this particular pool that if you could just get into the water at the right time, you could be healed. Whenever there is suffering humanity, wherever you find that kind of pain and suffering, you will find a humanity desperately seeking a way to remove that suffering. Here, this story is no different. Suffering people were literally climbing over each other, hoping for a chance to be healed in the stirred waters. It's been my experience that people who are suffering, who are wrestling with their pain and their suffering, they do wrestle with the question of, why is God allowing, why is a good God allowing this suffering in my life? But even more so than that question, they are seeking an answer to, how do I stop my suffering? How do I stop the pain I'm experiencing? We as a people will turn to anyone or anything we think can stop the suffering. So when Jesus asks the man, do you want to be healed? The man's response is almost incredulous. Are you crazy, man? Of course I want to be healed. Can't you see that's why I'm here? I'm here at this pool, hoping upon hope that somebody will drop me into that water so I can be healed. Of course, the, the great irony in this story is that sick man is talking to the great healer, the great physician. He's talking to the one who brought everything into existence. And Jesus can do more for him with just a few words than what 38 years of attempted cures has been able to, to provide for the man. So, Jesus simply says to the man, get up, take your bed, and walk. And the man is instantly healed. 
He takes up his bed and he begins walking. The one who spoke creation into existence could easily speak to this man's broken body and heal him. And that's exactly what he does. Jesus picks the man out of the crowd, asks, do you want to be healed? He hears, yes, of course. Jesus says, you are healed. And the man takes up his bed and he walks. It's incredible. It's beautiful. It's a miraculous story. Jesus heals broken people. And it's simply because he wants to. He chooses to. So that's the healing. Now we turn to my second point this morning as we walk through this passage. And it's the controversy that arises because of this healing. But really, how could there be any controversy to this? Jesus just kind of shows up to Jerusalem and he heals a suffering man. Who could have a problem with this? Well, let's read again one more time the controversy in verses. We'll start at the end of verse 9 and read through verse 16 if you want to follow along. Verses at the end through 9 through verse 16. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man then went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. And the passage says the Jews are the ones who are mad and causing controversy. We're in a section of the book of John that's going to begin a series of rising conflicts over the next few chapters between the Jews and Jesus. And we should stop here and just talk about that for a minute. When John, when the Gospel of John says the Jews, he's clearly talking about the cadre of religious leaders that over and over again oppose Jesus. You've got scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and high priests, this group of Jewish elite religious leaders who have power and authority, but that power and authority is being challenged by Jesus. It's being threatened by Jesus. And unfortunately, the Gospel of John and the shorthand use of the term the Jews has been used throughout history to actually persecute the Jewish people. Scripture has often been wrongly used to justify deep anti-Semitism. One sad example of this comes from the Protestant Reformation from Martin Luther. Luther, uh, later on in his life, began to denounce the Jewish people, and to not just denounce them, but to urge for their persecution. In one of his writings, he said that their schools and synagogues should be set on fire and burned to the ground. Part of Luther's rationale was using passages like this from the Gospel of John. Luther had succumbed to a kind of bitter intolerance and hatred for the Jewish people, and he was using Scripture poorly 
to back up his claims. And this anti-Semitism isn't just an old problem. It's still very, very active today. I remember reading an article just a few years ago about a Catholic high school in the suburbs of Boston that was playing another private school, a private high school in basketball. And the other team had a number of Jewish players on the basketball team, and the student section started chanting at the Jewish players, you killed Jesus, you killed Jesus. It's awful. And of course we have now the the neo-Nazi Christian nationalists, like the ones that marched on Charlottesville, Virginia, chanting, the Jews will not replace us. The Jews will not replace us. And even more recently, we've had Kanye West accusing a cabal of underground Jewish media mafia of greed and control and acting like modern-day slaveholders. It's so often people calling themselves Christians who spew this kind of sinful and racist rhetoric into the world. So opposite of Jesus. Jesus called us to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're told that the unbelieving world is supposed to know us by our love, not our hatred, and not by spewing words that are meant to incite violence in our neighbors. So when the Gospel of John says the Jews were upset and persecuting Jesus, it's a a shorthand way of saying the religious leaders of the day were opposing Jesus. Not all Jews everywhere throughout all time will always oppose Jesus and they deserve hatred. That's not what the text is saying. So these religious leaders of Jesus' day whose authority and power was being threatened were having a, a real problem with Jesus doing this healing on the Sabbath. These religious leaders were expert list keepers and they were expert list requirers. There are some kind of funny examples that come down to us from these religious leaders, some of the man-made rules that they put into existence around the time of Jesus. One of their rules said that you, you can't look in a mirror on the Sabbath day because you might be tempted to work at making yourself less ugly. Another one that comes from a little bit later after the time of Jesus says that you can't wear false teeth on the Sabbath because if those false teeth fall out, which apparently was a big problem at the time, you'd be tempted to bend down and pick up the false teeth and put them back in your mouth, which would constitute work, so you can't wear false teeth. Their thought was that the best way to keep the Sabbath holy was to set up as many rules as possible uh, to help put a, a safeguard around the Sabbath. And it wasn't just enough for them to keep all their man-made rules around the Sabbath, not just their own conscience. They wanted to control everybody else. They wanted everybody else to keep their man-made rules like they did. We all probably know a few people in our lives like this. Of course, of course, Sabbath and Sabbath-keeping is a good thing. Jesus teaches us that the Sabbath was made for us. Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. In other words, keeping the Sabbath holy is not meant to be a weight or a burden on our shoulders. It's meant to be for our good, for worship, for rest, 
for reflection. Keeping the Sabbath is actually meant to be a delight. But here, the Jewish leaders were so blinded by their desire to keep their own man-made rules and traditions around the Sabbath that they missed the miracle that just happened right in front of them. They missed that a man who just before was unable to walk is now able to pick up his mat and walk. They're completely missing the point of the Sabbath, and they're completely missing a miracle right in front of them. But this unnamed, healed man shows us his true colors. He doesn't seem to be a particularly good man. In verse 15, he shows himself to be a snitch. He, he runs and tattles on Jesus to the religious leaders, pointing him out. He's the man who's telling me to disobey the Sabbath. I think there might be a lesson in here for us. Jesus oftentimes heals people who don't deserve to be healed. Morally bankrupt sinners are just the kind of people that Jesus targets with his love. And so, Jesus heals the man, maybe not a great man, but Jesus heals him, and the Jewish religious leaders get mad because both the healed man is walking around with his mat, and Jesus, who healed him, they considered both to be breaking the law. And so, now we turn to my third and final point this morning, Jesus' surprising response to the controversy. And this shows up in verse 17. In verse 17, it says, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus' argument for why he can and do what he does on the Sabbath is a little different here than some of the other encounters that he has with the Jewish religious authorities. Here he says, Look, my Father in heaven is working until now, and now I am working. What's he saying? He's saying that there is a unique relationship between Jesus and his heavenly Father. And this actually launches Jesus into a whole long teaching about that unique relationship. Dwight will be preaching on that next week, so I'm not going to go too much into that here. But the reason Jesus says that he can work on the Sabbath is that God the Father has continually been working. He's been doing things like, you know, holding up all of creation by the power of his hands, that through his providence he, he's upholding all things, and he's doing that work. And so now Jesus has shown up on the scene, and he can also do miraculous God work on the Sabbath. Jesus is, at the very least, hinting at his own divinity his own divine prerogative to do work on the Sabbath. He can do this because he's, yes, he's 100% man, but he's also 100% God. He's fully man and fully God, two natures inseparably joined together in one person. And that's the thing about Jesus, right? A lot of people in our popular culture respect Jesus, they say things like, you know, I like some of the things that that Jesus taught. He seems like, a, seems like a good person who cared for people and taught good things about taking care of the poor. But I don't think he's really God. But Jesus 
is God. And he makes exclusive claims about himself. We'll hear him a little bit later on in John say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is not just another moral teacher who is okay with you being spiritual but not religious. See, Christianity is on a, a downward trend in America. According to Pew Research in 2020, 64% of Americans self-identify as Christian in some form, whether that be Catholic or Protestant or non-denominational. And that may seem to be a, a pretty high number, but it's actually the lowest number that it's ever been in America since Pew has started the research, 64%. In that same research, it says that 6% self-identify as some other religion, about 4% as completely atheist, and about 26% of Americans are what is now called nons. People who are apt to describe themselves as spiritual, but not religious. This is the fastest growing group in America. In other words, these nons believe there is something out there, something beyond this material world maybe, but they're not willing to call what they believe either Christianity or Islam or Judaism. And these numbers are even more stark among the younger generations and amongst urban populations the very kinds of people that we often tend to reach here at Renewal. People like the millennial generation and Gen Z. Gen Z is so quickly pushing towards identifying as spiritual but not religious that they're going to surpass 50% soon. Over 50% will soon say, oh, I'm spiritual but not religious. Your friends, your neighbors, your family members are quickly becoming all around us spiritual but not religious. Yeah, Jesus seems like a cool guy, but there are many roads to God if, in fact, there is even a God. So, what are we to do? What should our response be to this story? What should our response be to our increasingly post-Christian culture? Well, in one sense, we are the sick man in this story sitting along the roadside by the pool, longing to be dipped into the water, longing to be dipped into the water for healing. We are in desperate need of a Savior and salvation that is freely offered to us. We need to hear Jesus ask, do you want to be healed? And we need to respond, yes, yes, I want to be healed. John Calvin said, for what is more consonant with faith than to recognize that we are naked of all virtue? that we have nothing to offer God in order to be clothed by God. We are like that sick man, nothing good in and of ourselves to offer, not a particularly good man. And Jesus grabs us and he saves us and he heals us. And so we praise him for that. That's one side of the story. But in another sense, if you're a Christian here this morning, and you're a follower of Jesus, then you are called to be part of the healing and shalom of this world. You are called to join Jesus in his mission to seek and save the lost. And what does that look like? 
Well, I think it starts with actually knowing and loving people around you. It's the joy of our salvation bubbling up over our, in our souls, our wholeheartedness pointing our neighbors and our friends and our classmates to the one who has made us whole. I recently read an article about a man named Srikanth Bola. Bola was born blind into a poor family in India. And his father at the time when he was born was advised to get rid of him because he wouldn't be able to take care of him. But instead, his father raised him and sent him to school. Bola, who's now 30 years old, had his school books painstakingly converted by his teachers, lovingly converted by his teachers into audio format so that he could learn. He eventually aced high school and after being rejected by multiple colleges, he made his way into engineering school at MIT and was MIT's first international student who was born blind to graduate. He's now the founder and CEO of Bolent Industries, a multi-million dollar company manufacturing eco-friendly disposable packaging solutions that employs around 500 people, many of whom are disabled and come from disadvantages like his own. And here's what struck me from reading the article about the story of his life. When Bola was reflecting on the many people who came alongside him and helped him along the way, he said this, compassion is not about giving a coin to a beggar at a traffic stop. It's showing somebody the way to live and giving them an opportunity to thrive. It's showing somebody the way to live and giving them the opportunity to thrive. Sometimes I think we Christians think about evangelism or mercy and justice ministries like giving a few coins to a beggar on the street, a drive-by attempt at evangelism that costs us very little time and very little emotional investment. Instead, here is what I want for us here at Renewal. I want all of us to be agents of God's shalom and healing in a sick and dying world. When we see suffering people all around us in every form, from every socioeconomic background, from every cultural background, we show people the way to live and give them an opportunity to thrive by knowing the great healer, Jesus. This isn't easy or quick or something that we can do completely on our own. We need to encourage one another in this. We need to build long-standing, mutually beneficial relationships with our neighbors, our neighborhoods, and our neighborhood institutions. We need to be comfortable talking about our own faith in Jesus and the ways in which he has healed us. We need to be comfortable talking about the hope that we have found in Jesus. I promise you, people all around us, people all around you, want to be healed. People want to be whole. And we know the one who is both fully man and fully God, the one who is able to bring about healing. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
It's our tradition here at Renewal to take just a few quiet moments at the end of the sermon to reflect upon what we've just heard. So I'm going to invite you to just go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes and reflect along with me for a moment. So where are you at this morning? Do you recognize your own need of healing? Your own need of a healing Savior this morning? You like that sick man sitting beside the pool, just longing, longing for some relief. You know you need Jesus. It's a hard place to be, but it's actually a good place to be. It's a much, much better place than the self-righteous place of the religious leaders. It's much better to be humble, knowing that you're sick and in need of healing knowing that you've got nothing to offer. So if that's you this morning, whether you need physical healing or emotional healing or spiritual healing, pray to him now. Pray to Jesus, confessing faith and asking for his help. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you are a Christian but you're now realizing how rarely you ever talk about your faith with people who do not yet believe. I want you to think about those people in your life that God has really given you a burden for. Think about those friends, neighbors, relatives that don't know Jesus. Take a few quiet moments now and pray for them. Pray for them by name. Get into the, the habit of praying for them by name. Pray that they would come to faith in Jesus and pray for opportunities for yourself to have boldness to share your own faith, the joy that you found in Jesus with them. Pray for, pray for those people right now. Father, we are so thankful that you sent your sinless son to save us. And not just save us, but heal us. Thank you for sending him to show us how to live in your shalom. We admit we are lost and broken and suffering and that we were alone in the world before Jesus. Help us to have hearts overflowing with joy because we know what we have been saved from. God, help us to deeply and truly love our neighbors around us. Lord, help us to be empowered by your spirit, people with the, the gospel in our hearts and on our lips, people who serve as your very presence in the neighborhoods where we live. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in our place and living the life that we could not live and dying in sacrifice that we could not provide for ourselves. Lord, we worship you and bless your name, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and finisher of our faith, you who deserve all praise and glory and majesty now and forever.
Would you please join us and stand and sing this final song of praise?